0: This week, we discuss cannabis in traditional Chinese medicine, Eastern holism versus Western reductionism, and problems in Oregon post-legalization. Coming up next on Critical Grass.
1: Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating. Mind expanding. Safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. Hi, my name is Katie Stem, and I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I'm the founder and CEO of Peak Extracts, and I'm also an acupuncturist.
0: That was New Dark Age with a cool little ditty called Acupuncture. Love how they're naming songs after traditional medical procedures now. Can't wait to hear a concept album dealing with trepanation. I'm sure it'll sound just lovely. At any rate, this week's guest has a lot to do with acupuncture and other forms of traditional medicine. Katie Stem is a native of Eastern Washington, though she's been based in Portland, Oregon for several years now. She majored in pre-med and literature while in college and has over 10 years of laboratory science experience. While working for Washington State University and Oregon Health and Science University, she experimented in the fields of physiology, pharmacology, and neurology using natural products and pharmaceutical interventions for human diseases. She also has a degree in traditional Chinese medicine and is a nationally certified licensed herbalist and acupuncturist and has maintained a practice in Portland since 2010. She is also the CEO of Peak Extracts, a cannabis company based in Portland that makes single strain extracts and edibles, and she is also a medical cannabis patient herself. She's been heavily involved and connected with the medical cannabis community since the very early days. So Katie likes sticking sharp, pointy things into people, of course, at their behest and with nothing but their best interests in mind. So of course, I was curious as to how she came into contact with cannabis initially and how she got into acupuncture.
1: Well, back to my theater roots, actually. So a lot of my friends had been experimenting with cannabis when I was in high school, and I was a bit alienated by their experiences. I became more of like a Sherpa and protecting them and feeding them and keeping them from harm when they got pretty crazy. And it was actually one of my former teachers, one of my former drama teachers, that convinced me that using cannabis could be more of an adult experience. Um, And so one summer he and I went down to the Snake River in Eastern Washington where I'm from and we spent the afternoon, we smoked some cannabis and then we walked along the river and we had this wonderful two hour philosophical conversation and it was just an absolutely amazing foray into cannabis. And I I think I was 17 or 18 at the time. Yeah, I had a, a background in scientific research which I started doing when I was a teenager, I I was an apprentice in an anatomy lab. And then through college, and then several years after college, I worked in a laboratory doing various kinds of medical or pharmaceutical research. Um, And then after I I stopped working at OHSU, the the medical hospital, the research hospital here in in Portland, I went back to school and got my master's in Chinese medicine and herbal medicine. So my my experience with studying it in um in school was that they didn't talk about it much because the 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 kind of Chinese medicine that I studied was called TCM just standard traditional Chinese medicine which is actually an amalgamation of the various schools of Chinese medicine since Mao and so Mao was not big on drugs um and so it was glossed over entirely we talked about it a, a bit only because we asked questions to our professors but they were trained under the communist regime. And so they didn't have much nice to say about it. However, the Shendong Bencao Jing, which is the first herbal text, which is a couple thousand years old, has a couple of pages on cannabis, Ma, and it talks about it being useful for pain and how to prepare it. And it, it's funny, there's a bit of it that I have in translation that says that it, overdose will result on you running mad naked on the beach which it's rather specific and doesn't sound that awful to me, honestly. But, um, you yeah, know, the, the, it's, it's hard to get a straight answer. Um, I mean, obviously, it's, it's very good for analgesia. They will acknowledge that. And they consider it to be a very hot herb, which um, I think is interesting. It's also kind of we could argue it based on what cultivar. When I think about it in the context of Chinese herbal medicine, I think that there can be some variations on its properties based on the different cultivars.
0: Funny how smoking cannabis can lead to deep philosophical thoughts and conversations, but I'm sure Katie isn't the only person who had a similar introduction to the benefits of pot. Uh, Running mad naked on the beach? That sounds like a lot of fun, actually, Uh, though personally I can't think of many cannabis users who would do so after getting baked. This sounds more like a scare tactic, not unlike the prohibition propaganda from the reefer madness days of the 1920s and 30s in the USA. So Chairman Mao wasn't a fan of drugs in general, and that included cannabis, but at a minimum he did leave it in their herbal texts, which would be something similar to a Western pharmacopoeia. That's something that the US and many other Western countries did not do as they decided to censor or completely remove cannabis from their medical texts. Katie also mentioned that traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM, considers cannabis to be a hot herb. This doesn't actually refer to temperature or taste, as some people might be inclined to think. Katie explains the details of this particular aspect of TCM.
1: So um, everything in, in Chinese medicine, it's, it's very metaphorical. It's not, not often literally, although it is sometimes also literal, um, is, is taken as either hot and cold, yin or yang, that kind of thing. Um, and so um, an example of a hot food would be like a Sichuan pepper. It's very hot. It's spicy, but it's also hot. Ginger's hot, Um, whereas mint is cool, Um, and so cannabis is considered hot, and it's it's considered hot because of the rising feeling and because of the agitation. And so when when they were categorizing it, they were having um, interactions with mostly the Indian hemp, which is mostly a sativa, as far as I've learned, Um, and so it was that very energetic, you know, very active high, and. It caused agitation it caused, you know, increased motor activity. And so that was why they described it as hot, whereas something that would be more sedating, more like an indica would be a cooler thing, something that causes sleep, something that causes relaxation. That would be a cooler herb.
0: I think it's safe to assume that when traditional Chinese medical texts were being written, the cultivar selection was much more limited than it is today. Things like cannabis terpene profiles and the endocannabinoid system also hadn't been discovered yet, so there was no way to tell whether one type of cannabis plant would have an effect on a given condition compared to another. But at the very least, they did recognize the analgesic effect of cannabis and didn't create a racist war on herbs to jail people they didn't like. Now, Katie has been practicing acupuncture and herbal medicine for a good few years now. So I was uh, curious how the Western mindset views TCM and what role cannabis can play for her patients.
1: I think it's it's been a struggle for Western herbalists and herbalists in general to, to lace it in in a way that makes the most sense. Um, I mean, I... I often talk about it with my patients. I'm not officially allowed to prescribe it, obviously. Um, But when people come to me and they ask me what I would recommend and how it will interact with their formulas, like that's an easy conversation for me to have because I know about the pharmacological actions of each. Um, It's easiest for me to think about it when combined in topical applications because it has a pretty neat and tidy um, pharmacological action when it comes to topical application. And so it, I have it integrated in a Chinese formula in my rescue rub, the topical that we sell. And so that, it, it, you know, it, it's got a long history of being used in that fashion. So it's, it's basically for analgesia. Um, we have a couple different preparations that use CBD and CBDA, have a different mechanism of action, but the THC formulation is just plain analgesia. Um, when used with the other herbs
0: tcm dates back several thousand years and includes things like herbal medicine acupuncture cupping therapy massages bone setting exercise and dietary therapy given that the western approach to cannabis as medicine is quite recent at least in its current form it makes me wonder what cannabis applications looked like several thousand years ago for example did they just use flour or did they figure out how to extract the medical compounds in the plant and turn it into something else
1: they did. They did. They used um, a what's called a wine decoction, which is essentially vodka or some sort of spirit that they do an uh, extraction with alcohol. Um, and they also did um, a water decoction, which I'm not sure how successful that was in terms of getting what they wanted out of it. Um, a lot of Chinese herbs are prepared in hot water or steam uh, decoction, and so you know, depends how hot it was, whether it would decarboxylate, how long it was boiled. Um, you would get some of the, certainly the chlorophyll and some of the cannabinoids in the decoction, especially if you drank the stuff that was on the top, the oils that ended up at the end. Um, and I mean, I imagine that it was decocted with other oily substances. There are a number of, of Chinese herbs that are oily based. And so they could conceivably have dissolved the cannabinoids in those substances. And then you drink those. Sort of like bang, where it was boiled with butter um, in water and then the cannabis dissolved into the butter that floated on top and then people ate the butter and got
0: real high. So it sounds like herbalists in China were way ahead of the curve as far as tinctures and other non-smokable forms of cannabis are concerned. However, these days, at least since the founding of the People's Republic of China, the country isn't considered to be a mecca for cannabis use. Was it Chairman Mao's revolution that restricted the role of cannabis in traditional Chinese medicine?
1: I'm not entirely sure. I mean, there's not a lot of good data about how it was used other than these texts that we have access to. Um, Hemp was certainly widely available, and hemp continues to be used widely for uh, digestive issues. Hemp seed is in the Chinese pharmacopoeia and is used for, for constipation all the time um and used for like dietary deficiencies and so hemp remains a a major cornerstone of chinese culture and chinese medicine but the psychotropic stuff they frown upon um i i think it's totally possible that they were using tinctures and decoctions up until right around when we also stopped using those same things in the 30s 20s um because you know turn of the previous century victorian era medicine. There was a ton of cannabis used in in tincture form and decoction form in most cultures.
0: So it seems like a global panic with respect to cannabis broke out around that time. As Katie mentions, loads of places had cannabis in their pharmacopoeias, and tinctures were widely available all over the globe, Europe and the U.S. included. Herbalism is still a valid medical option in many places around the world, though over the past several decades, pharmaceutical companies have dominated the medical field. With the significant role of herbs in TCM, is it possible to reconcile herbalism with the Western approach to medicine?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think herbalism is a little bit more complicated than most people want to study. Um, A lot of the people that I went to school with didn't actually pursue the herbal, um, the boards that are required to have that extra herbal um, certification. And Western like Western medicine doctors tend to be really nervous about Chinese herbs because it's so much polypharmacy and they acknowledge that the herbs are well studied and are pharmacologically active, but it makes them nervous that there's so many combined, even though the combinations themselves have been studied extensively. Um, And so, I mean, I think that it's easy enough to demonstrate that individual herbs and the active constituents have pharmacological properties. For instance, like Jin Yin Hua, which is a, a very, tip of the honeysuckle flower or the buds on the honeysuckle flower. A lot of the antivirals that you look at are the emerging tips of plants because that's when the plants are most vulnerable to bacteria and viruses, right? They're they're trying to grow and new growth is vulnerable to attack from outside pathogens. And so this is where the concentration of the antiviral or bacterial compounds are, are concentrated. And so Chinese medicine has done a very good job at figuring out exactly when to harvest which parts of the plant in order to get all of these great active constituents. And so short answer, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of really good herbal formulas and they're really well studied the question is getting them into the hands of people who know what they're doing and know how to pre- prescribe them, and finding a good herbalist. Um, and also getting this complementary medicine between the Western and Eastern practitioners of herbs. Because the Western philosophy, and I know this from experience, is that what they want to do is they want to find whatever works in that compound or in that plant extract. And when the last job I had, I worked at OHSU. And we were working with green tea extract. And green tea is, as you know, extremely well-tolerated. You can drink a ton of it without any complications. But EGCG, the the chief antioxidant in green tea, um, is really caustic. And when you get it at high enough thresholds to be medicinally useful, it causes nausea and vomiting. And so I'm always skeptical of the Western approach to herbalism because they want to isolate the compound in order to like reduce this risk of polypharmaceutical interaction and drug interactions. But then you end up taking all the buffering agents and safety measures that the plants have integrated in themselves. You know what I mean? And so um, it's, it's tricky. It's something that I, I deal with all the time where it's like, I want to prescribe an herbal formula, but sometimes there's Western drugs that will interact and, you know, taking formulas, you you have to change up. It's not something that you can just put someone on and then leave them for six months. Like you said, it's like something that works immediately and then you do something else.
0: One feature of Western medicine that distinguishes it from Eastern or Chinese medicine is the reductionist approach to solving complex problems. Basically, it involves analyzing and describing a complex phenomenon in terms of simple or basic parts, especially when it's said to provide a sufficient explanation. In other words, peel away all the layers of something until you find the culprit. The opposite of reductionism would be a holistic approach, which states that a complex issue can only be approached as a whole. Well, with this in mind, is Western medicine irreconcilable with the Eastern version?
1: I don't think so. I think that there are a couple of really easy formulas that um, some Western practitioners have embraced. And a lot of my own friends that are in Western medicine are now total fans, mostly the antiviral and immune boosting formulas. There's a couple of formulas that pretty much every Chinese person will take like when they fly or if they get exposed to some sort of viral pathogen. And those are, they're really straightforward. You just take them when you're getting sick and they're they're proven antivirals. Like what's the harm, you know? And so they're used very much like Western drugs where it's like, you have a problem, you take something. And so that makes sense for the Western mind. It makes sense for everybody, right? It's like, you know, if A, then B. Um, and so those formulas, I think, are really easy. There's a couple of menstrual formulas that are really good for PMS. Those are, you know, you can find them at Whole Foods now. And, you know, you take the one that is good for cramps, you take it for seven days before your menses, and people are are starting to really get on board with those. For the more complicated herbal medicine, you really just need to go to an herbalist because they're gonna be giving you the custom formulas that are based on your individual symptom profile and they'll be giving you the ones that are, you know, are for different times in whatever cycle we're talking about. The way I practice it and the way I learned it, yes. Um, they. I mean, I think that the, the strength of where I am in the medical portfolio is that I spend a lot more face time with patients I work on a lot more minor complaints, things that you wouldn't go to the doctor for. Or if you went to the doctor, they would say, you know, come back when you're worse. You know, the first two weeks of a cold, menstrual stuff um, or intractable stuff. But regardless, like my job is also to identify things that need more serious intervention. Like I will send someone to the doctor for a scope if I think that they have Barrett's esophagus as opposed to, you know, regular old heartburn caused by stress. Um, And so I think that, you know, it's like the more time and in the U.S. people aren't spending enough time with physicians or with medical care and they're delaying it to this point where it's requiring really severe interventions. And so that's where I think, you know, people like herbalists, acupuncturists, when well trained can help support the medical system to avoid these like really disastrous outcomes that require cutting surgery, um, you know pacemakers, that kind of thing. Like you you, you treat things before they get really serious.
0: Well, as the saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Well, we see now how cannabis can play a prominent role in herbalism. Uh, I was also curious as to how Katie decided to take her appreciation of cannabis to the next level by founding her very own extract company.
1: I was a medical patient for almost 10 years, and I had been making strain-specific chocolates for myself and for my friends and medical patients that were in my community. And I was also making the, the topical rescue rub for myself. And I had been making the base of the rescue rub in my Chinese herbal practice for several years at that point um, without the cannabis in it. And my partner and I, Kate Black, um, she she had a lot of experience with culinary arts and design and she was also an entrepreneur. And we, we just had this moment where we're like, you know, this is a big opportunity. We have a ton of skills, um, between the two of us that seems like we could make a a good go of it. Why don't we try? And we thought it was going to be like a part-time thing a couple days a week. Cause I still had my medical practice and, and so, um, it, it snowballed into a much larger affair, obviously. Um, and that's how the company was born. And then we just kept increasing our product offerings and we began doing our own extraction in 2014. Um, And then we upgraded in 2016 and we got our our facility and our chocolate factory. And then we've just recently expanded again into hemp. So we're mirroring all of our cannabis offerings on the hemp side now. With
0: hemp products, Katie is referring to CBD, which has exploded in terms of popularity all across the globe modern-day China included. In fact, China is the world's largest producer of hemp by a significant margin. However, this is all for export as THC and CBD products are still forbidden in the country of the forbidden city. But that does not mean that people in China do not use cannabis. Uh, It is actually sold widely across the country, though only underground, and its quality can be pretty poor while also being overpriced. But back to herbalism and medicine, CBD has once again made headlines, uh, this time after a group of Canadian scientists discovered that a highly concentrated CBD oil was successfully used in making people more resistant to the coronavirus. I wanted to know if Katie has any experience in her practice with COVID-19.
1: My experience with COVID is that I've been avoiding (laughs) <laughs> it, it as much as possible. Um, I I think we don't know enough about the virus. You know, there's plenty of Chinese herbal formulas that I would recommend for other coronaviruses. This one seems to be unique in several ways that make me extremely nervous, um, especially the way that it targets multiple body systems. And so, you know, the, the interesting part for me with the CBD is the way that it seems to be tempering the cytokine storm, which to me is the most alarming part of COVID is when you get that immune reaction that can be fatal, especially in otherwise not vulnerable populations like the young and the not med- medically afflicted. Um, and so that that part is super interesting to me is this idea of the immunomodulatory properties of CBD, um, preventing that super damaging chain reaction. Um, other than that, I'm watching a thing. Because we know that THC is an immunosuppressant, so that could be really negative at first, or it could be positive when you get into the part where the immune system is overreacting. Um, but you know, there's not like, established antiviral properties of either. And so it's likely more to do with the way that it's modulating your endocannabinoid system, which is super involved in immunity and inflammation. So short answer, I need way more information. I think that it's, it's it's such a safe substance in general, in terms of toxicity. I would worry about the immunosuppressant properties of THC, I would absolutely recommend against smoking because anything that's going to irritate your respiratory system when this virus is such an aggressive attacker of your respiratory system is a poor idea. And so any method that you can employ that doesn't involve the lungs is a recommendation that I would have. It's like, don't smoke it. Um, If you're going to take a tincture or an edible, that would be preferable.
0: So no, taking bong hits won't cure your coronavirus. In fact, it might even exacerbate the problem. So topicals and edibles seem like the way to go if you want to treat certain symptoms. It's still way too early to know what can treat, cure, or prevent coronavirus. So people really need to be careful when they hear any wild claims that cannabis will do the trick, regardless of its form. However, the good news is that there are many illnesses and conditions that cannabis does do wonders for. For example, general pain, as mentioned earlier. There is a bit of an issue, however. Not all patients are aware of the benefits of cannabis or know what and how much to take, and neither are all doctors privy to the wonders of weed. So what's a person supposed to do if they think they might benefit from cannabis therapy but have no clue as to how to go about it?
1: I recommend going to somewhere where they have a variety of options. If they're not in a place where it's legal and they can't go to a dispensary, I mean, bud tenders tend to overdose people because they tend to be pretty heavy users. And so I always caution people if they're talking to their budtender tender and their budtender tender says, oh, you should start with 15 milligrams. Like, don't start with 15 milligrams. If you're a novice user, please don't um, start with more like two and a half. Um, but um, otherwise, if you, so if you don't have access to someone who can actually walk you through all of the different options, then I would say try to find a company that's reputable and that can give you different options. And then Maybe they have an email that you can ask about and they can sort of winnow you towards different choices. I mean, our our company is based entirely on this idea that strain specific really matters and different people have different chemistries. And so you want to try to find the thing that works for you. And based on a few different basic questions, we can sort of say, well, well, it's probably going to be one of these two or three things that's going to be best for you in these particular moments. Um, and so that that would be my best advice is try to talk to some people. Um, I mean, I think most medicine is best when you get an in-person referral or you can actually speak face to face and talk about what's going on with you. And so there's plenty of cannabis companies where that's possible like ours, you know, we have, we have an email that you can write to and myself or our sales manager will, will direct you towards the product that most suits your needs.
0: If you're fortunate enough to live in a place with legal medical or adult use cannabis, finding a suitable doctor should not be a problem. Otherwise, the internet is your best option for at least trying to get a consultation somewhere. However, even in legal states, things are not so cut and dried. Oregon has had a medical marijuana program since 1998, but patients haven't had it easy and some even argue that things have gotten worse since adult use was legalized in 2015. Katie goes into the details of the patient situation in the Beaver State.
1: Well, I think it's always been a bit of a problem in Oregon. I've been a medical patient since 2005, and my experience for the first seven or so years as a medical patient was that there was zero help. And the re- we had to find our, each other in order to find medicine. And so compared to that, I think that it's infinitely better now. And most companies that I work with, given I don't work with the huge super profit driven companies, but most companies that I work with are really medically driven, including ourselves. Like we really focus on medical preparations. Um, and a lot of the tenders are really passionate about the medical aspect too. Um, and so I think that if you go to the right to the dispensary, you're going to get some really good attention um, and you're going to get the discount, but sometimes it still is cost prohibitive for medical patients, which is super unfortunate. I think that they could do a better job of encouraging batch size limitations, for instance, we had to stop making our medical strength chocolate bar because the certification for each individual product is so expensive and the packaging that you have to get approved. And so you have to sell a certain number of units over the course of a year to justify renewing the certification that you require to do by the licensing body. And even though we sold our twice the strength chocolate bar for the same price, but it was only available to medical patients. Not enough people bought it. And so it didn't make sense to continue making it. And so now we're left with this like, okay, is there a way that we can get medicine into medical patients' hands free of cost, some sort of way to do that? And organs made it a bit difficult. I know that most everyone who is in this industry wants to be able to provide medicine for people who need it and can't afford it, but they've put a lot of hurdles in the way. In terms of being able to actually for people who are manufacturing the products be able to distribute it to people who need it as opposed to people who are separate in the still in the medical um, system that's easy but i mean we're the ones that have all of the medicine all of the equipment to make it efficiently and uniformly so it's a little frustrating for me Mm -hmm. like we could easily take a one percent of our products and give them away to medical patients and we would be happy to do so but that's Totally illegal. They think it would be a source of diversion, you know, of to to the black market, which I get. And yet it seems like they're putting the bottleneck in the wrong spot. Whereas, you know, I mean, there's plenty of ways that they could structure it so that it wouldn't be possible to divert. Um, but they haven't they haven't allowed us to transfer to non-license holders. And so to own a license in Oregon, you have to spend the thousands and thousands of dollars per year to get a license, so.
0: So it's not just patients that still have to struggle post-legalization. Processors also have their hands tied in terms of product strength. The idea behind the state putting on these restrictions is to combat the black market, though that might be a losing battle for quite a long time. I was also curious as to what other hurdles there might be in Oregon going forward, especially with fully legal adult-use cannabis.
1: I think the biggest bump on the road that I'm looking for right now is interstate commerce. It's really asinine that we can't move between contiguous states. Um, Maine, Oregon, Washington, and California are all legal. Nevada is too. And so there's this really cool corridor that we could all be working together and, That's forbidden right now, but someone's going to do it and there's going to probably be a Supreme Court case. And I'm hoping that it's going to come down in favor of interstate commerce because it really just makes sense. And the the amount of inefficiency that we have to go through as a company in order to do what we're required to do, not use the postal service. So we have to you know, Oregon is has a stripe of population on the west side near the, the mountains. Um, But there's places that are five hours away, Oregon's a pretty big state, where we have to physically drive orders. And so these are small shops that need attention. But, you know, it's like a $200 order that we have to physically take there, which is just asinine when we could mail a box for $5.15. That's illegal. So, I mean, there's just a lot of weird redundancies and inefficiencies that if they could just fix those things that are just so common sense, it would be amazing. Um, I still see some barricades with places like Idaho, like, for instance, Idaho, even though it's totally illegal, they've been intercepting packages of hemp as they pass through, which is I mean, it's taking a federal law and and going against it, which is it's it's like that kind of demonstrates how difficult it's going to be to convince places like Idaho that cannabis is okay, you know. So I think it's going to come down to states and hopefully we'll get some sort of interstate commerce with contiguous states. And then hopefully we'll be able to do over states, not necessarily through. So we may have to do like air Mm. over the backwards states. I don't know. (laughs) It'll be interesting. I mean, it's so silly because Oregon could easily supply and supply well the entire country and so could California. And so. There's plenty of places where it's not a hospitable place to actually grow it outdoors, and we know that it's really inefficient to grow indoors, so come on, people.
0: Yeah, seriously, what the hell, people? The entire west coast of the North American continent has either legal medical or adult-use cannabis. Mexico was about to legalize across the board in April, though the pandemic pushed that deadline back a few months. Otherwise, Alaska, Canada, Washington, Oregon, California all have legal medical and recreational laws on the books. To keep these places from trading in cannabis products with each other is absurd and absolutely backward, and this is only because of federal law. In these places, cannabis is a normal day-to-day thing, a way of life even, hardly any stigma whatsoever, although stigmatization can still be a thing, even in the generally tolerant Pacific Northwest.
1: I think I'm kind of used to it on several levels because I'm I'm female and I've been in science my whole adult life and that's comes with its obvious hurdles and queer growing up in Eastern Washington super unfriendly um and yeah there was a big difference between the feelings towards cannabis in Eastern Washington versus Portland Portland is w- way more friendly but there still is this you know the stigma like you said um and skepticism regarding scientific merits which now there's so much more data that I can point to and I can speak cogently about um which really helps um one of the biggest problems that we ran into was as I mentioned the city of Portland was really difficult to work with and there was one person that was working and was the gatekeeper of our permitting that said straight up that cannabis was an evil drug and everyone would become heroin addicts if it was legalized. And so he made it his personal crusade to not allow people to get licensed to produce cannabis in, or cannabis products in, in the city of Portland. And he did quite a good job of, of giving us all headaches for almost a year. Um, But, you know, in the end of the day, the, the other people in power like Jeff Merkley and Kate Brown and Our mayor, that they're all really supportive of cannabis because they know what an enormous driver of tax revenue it is. Um, And, you know, that's just been kind of a little bit of a ho hum thing. Like, we haven't had an increase in traffic fatalities. You know, underage smoking hasn't gone up. And so it's really well regulated here. It's much safer to consume now than it was six years ago because of the pesticide testing. Um, there's just been an enormous amount of progress in the last few years. And so the stigma that used to kind of give me a tummy ache is not something that I deal with as often anymore. Um, and as CBD, CBD becomes more mainstream, that's also, I'm having more open conversations where people are coming to me and they're asking for information rather than bringing me judgment and skepticism, which Mm -hmm. is really cool.
0: Well, progress can be slow at times, but with some patience and perseverance, as in the case of Oregon and many other states for that matter, we will get to the promised land. All right, so any advice for people wanting to get into the cannabis game?
1: Um, I would say try to find people who are in the the industry and find a mentor and figure out what your interests are. The the longer the industry has been operating, the more facets there are and the more you have a chance to specialize. And so it's no longer... Something that you can just be like, I'm in cannabis, you kind of have to pick something like, do you want to be in the activist side? Do you want to be in the CPG consumer packaged goods side? Um, Testing, research, there's a myriad of angles that you could take within the industry. And so try to figure out where it's like, I want to be a scientist. Well, pick what kind of scientist you want to be and where you want to find your spot. Um, And then figure out if you want to start your own company where you want to be, what the kind of regulations look like and how you're going to get some funding. I don't think it's something that you can do self-funded anymore, unfortunately. Um, I think that's long past. Um, And so finding a good company to work for, finding some mentorship opportunities, I think that's the best place to start. Or, you know, pick a lane, don't like it, switch lanes.
0: That's some very fine advice from a seasoned cannabis pro. Take note, kids. So how do we contact Katie if we want to reach her
1: Go on to our website, www.peakextracts.com, and then go to the contact.
0: And you can also find them on social media with the handle at Peak Extracts. All right, last but not least, time to bid our guest a fond farewell. Katie Stem of Peak Extracts, thank you for the lovely conversation. Uh, it's always nice to get a scientific perspective on cannabis issues. All the best with Peak Extracts and with any other projects you are working on. Uh, It's a very noble service. Uh, So, yeah, uh, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I hope to cross paths once again someday, perhaps in the Pacific Northwest, once I can uh, make my way out there again or uh, perhaps somewhere else uh, in the cannabis world.
1: Thank you so much for your time.
0: That was episode forty-two of the Critical Grass podcast. Thanks again to Katie Stem for the great chat. I think I might stick some pins in me now for old times' sake. If you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share with others. If you'd like to support the show in material terms, you can become a Patreon by going to Patreon.com/CriticalGrass or donate via the PayPal button on our website. We'll be back again next week with another fantastic Ganja guest, so don't go nowhere. My name still is Bogdan, Zaijian.